Jewish Money Matters episode 249, How to Design Your Path to Wealth with Wealth Architect Arya Scheinbein. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. If you're a business owner thinking, I probably should also figure out how to manage my money, but I just don't have the time, this show is for you. I have Arya Scheinbein. Arya is a wealth architect helping successful business owners and entrepreneurs invest their money intelligently, allowing their wealth to accumulate so that they can stay focused on what truly matters, their business and mission. He has tons of experience in the finance space and comes to this line of work with quite the fresh approach, a real desire to help people build long-term wealth without stinging them into a cookie cutter approach or system and allowing them to make educated decisions that work for their lifestyle and their goals for themselves. Now, within all that, and in this conversation, there's things for all of us to learn. There are just, you know, things that we should all be considering when it comes to managing our money, whether we work for ourselves or not. Among the many things that we discuss, Aria helps folks who might think the 401k is the only answer to growing wealth or, you know, how do we approach different opportunities to grow wealth when we don't know which one to take? What to think about if your budget is stretched to the max with the beautiful blessing of a growing family and much more. Aria is approachable and has a talent for explaining things in a clear, easy to understand way. I think you'll find much to learn here. Perhaps you want to take notes. Here's Aria Scheinbein. Arya Scheinbein, welcome to Jewish Money Matters. It's really such a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, y'all. I'm I'm well, thanks. I'm excited to dive into this conversation. I think particularly because your work, you're a wealth architect, which we'll talk about that term soon, but you focus on helping business owners, entrepreneurs manage their personal money, shaping their financial futures. I think this is quite a unique and important niche because very often people feel like, well, if you're good at starting a business and growing a business, you're also good at building wealth. And that's not necessarily the case. Maybe we can even start there, Arya. Would you agree with that? And if so, what are the pieces, the missing pieces here, which presumably you come to fill? Yeah. So I think I think you make an excellent, excellent point, right? And, And I think the underlying assumption a lot of people just fundamentally make is, if I'm good at business, mm-hmm. I'm good at managing my money and growing my money. And unfortunately, a lot of times that's not the case. Right. Making money and keeping and growing money are kind of different things. Like mm-hmm. if we keep the, the keeping and growing, we put that in one category and making money, you can look at a top salesperson, any company, right? Insurance, car sales, it doesn't matter, solar panels, pick your mortgages, whatever it is, they can produce a lot of income. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, that at the end of the year, their bank account is full, that their stock you know, market, you know, whatever you want to call it, your Schwab account is full, their crypto, your real estate, whatever it is, it, it could be bare or on the negative because of how that translates into your personal life, right? Like you may spend more than you make. You mm-hmm. may spend as much as you make, right? And so <clears throat> people who are successful at business 
sometimes they're just great earners, right? They could be great salespeople. They may be actually really good at business, a lot of the aspects of business, but they may also have like a CFO in the business who kind of keeps the handle on the expense side or keeps the handle on understanding cash flow management or keeps the handle on like org chart, not getting unwieldy. Like you don't, you don't know what that business, like the visionary person doesn't have to be all the things, but they can be really good at the business side, but they have a COO or a CFO or someone else who's handling a lot of the things that when you now step into your personal life, you either don't have a personal assistant who knows these things. You may or may not have a spouse who says, oh, I love, and I'm really good at those things. And you're, you're kind of like drowning in all these things that you may not even like, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'd say the average entrepreneur, um, they would do what I would call the ostrich, the things they don't like, right? They bury their hand head in the sand Mm -hmm. for their taxes, their accounting, their bookkeeping, because that's not them. They don't like it, right? Like Mm -hmm. the most common thing you hear is like, oh, I'm not good with numbers. I don't like numbers or like, and the truth is that's not, that's not really true. What's true is they don't like the minutiae. Right. of having to worry about this. This is too far below their radar. Mm-hmm. And, and they want to focus on the big picture, which is fine. fine. I mean, depending on your business, it, it may be an issue, but like for the most part, it's fine, right? Like, and you can have someone else do these things. But when it comes to your personal life, you, you don't have that luxury. And so therefore, sometimes you just, you're, you have money because you're just so successful in your business and it doesn't matter, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's growing. It doesn't mean it's compounding and it may not be there for the future generations. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think that's like an, an, a, an astute observation that you're making that like because someone's good at business doesn't necessarily translate onto the person. Right. And, and, and ultimately, we're growing the business, not just because there's a tremendous sense of fulfillment and a mission that we're accomplishment and, you know, and we're making but the financial impact not just towards others, but also the legacy we're leaving to our family. So then therein comes that personal money management piece, which like you just said, if you could be making a lot of money, but if it's not translating in that money working for you, then a part of why you're working so hard is not being accomplished. Agreed. And that's a big part of it. So it's interesting that you chose that term wealth architect, which I love versus, you know, you're not, I don't think you're a certified financial planner. I didn't see that, right? You're not a CFP. You're not a financial advisor. You know, you could have chosen many other terms. And I'd love for you to dissect that a little bit, because I think, you know, for listeners, there's so much, you know, when in the financial world, um, the lingo is almost like everything and it could get so confusing and it's almost alienating, right? So, so why don't you define it a little bit for listeners so that they understand like what is the role of a person like you in their world versus some of these other people who have a role in a team you know but- yeah a hundred percent so um, I'm going to take a step back mm-hmm. just to frame it for everybody mm-hmm. so that they can better understand so my my background is right like I went to undergrad I went to college I got a finance degree I went to Wall Street and I did this investment banking thing and I went to. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> I love how you. I love how you put it. This investment banking thing. I would call it that too. <laughs> this thing that we were all supposed to do. I checked the box. <laughs> yeah, and and the truth is, is like, I was so focused on getting there. When I got there, I was like, I don't even know if this is really what I love. I can't um, relate. I cannot relate <laughs> at all. <laughs> so, um, it, but I stayed the course of the career. And went into private equity and went, went worked for a hedge fund for many years 
And, and now my full-time day job, though, is I still consult for a lot of private equity firms and hedge funds to value businesses, value their investments that are non-public, private, mm-hmm. private equity, private companies. But mm-hmm. along the way, I started doing a whole lot of other things. I built a couple of e-commerce businesses, and I started to meet this whole world of entrepreneurs. And, and deep down, like, you know, I, I can probably tell you stories about stories about how really I was probably an entrepreneur as a kid. But I, you know, at the time I was coming out of college, well, the time I went to college, that was not an acceptable term, right? Like mm-hmm. saying you're going to go work for yourself, people would be like, what, you're going to open a stationary store? You know, like mm-hmm. it would have been like, you know, weird. Now it's like, hey, you have a phone, you have a business. So it's totally different. But anyway, um, I started meeting all these entrepreneurs and a lot of them were good at different things. And they had really important missions that they were trying to accomplish and, and goals they wanted, but they really didn't get the personal finance side. And so my career on that side gave me a lot of knowledge, but I also studied a lot of personal finance probably out of the gate because it was just interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and it was really attractive to what, what spoke to me and, and how I behaved and, and different things. And so I just started dispensing advice to all these people and they'd be like, oh, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I'm like, well, I don't know. That's the best idea. Here's why. Maybe you want to think about it this way. That may work, but may not work. Just understand kind of the risk reward and, and start framing things because, and so this, to answer your question about wealth architect, what happened was, is that I really found myself in a position of, I have a very strong knowledge base, but the financial industry has a lot of jargon, right? But it also has like these connotations and assumptions. When you say to someone, like, if, if I go to the business world and I'm like, Hey, I, I want to be your advisor. Right. So they think of like, oh, maybe you put you on the board, maybe you put you on the advisory board, maybe you kind of you give us advice. We maybe consult with you, we listen, we don't pay, not paid, whatever it may be. But the, the idea of taking advice and being an advisor, it feels clean. When you say financial advisor, bam, all of a sudden people think stockbroker, people mm-hmm. think, you know, uh, commission, commission, all mm-hmm. the negativity that kind of mm-hmm. surrounds that. So the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to kind of be, you know, out of, out of that assumption of like, I'm I'm not charging you a commission to do anything. Like I don't want my incentives to be aligned with transaction. Mm -hmm. And so the architect is right. Who's someone who's designing your house is designing your buildings, designing all these things. And that's much more how I think about it because um, I I kind of say like I'm product agnostic. And the reason the, the, what that really means is, right, like I think of insurance as a product, stock as a product, real estate as a product. All these things are verticals where you can build wealth in or protect your family in. But at the same time, like I'm pretty agnostic to which vehicle you want to use. Mm-hmm. So some people just have a, a have a very, you know, adverse effect of stocks or an adverse feeling towards, you know, crypto or whatever it may be. And so therefore... I don't want them to feel like, well, if you're not going to do that, you can't, you're never going to make it. Right. Right. And so in today's world, especially in the online world, you have, everyone is solving your problem by marketing. They're Mm -hmm. marketing a a very focused vertical, right? I can teach you to sit at home and trade options and nothing else will make you as much money as this. So that is my marketing message, but really that's not true. And so I'm, I'm not saying that like, it doesn't work, right? Like that's the marketing message that gets people. Like I remember when I was a kid, like no money down, like uh, Carlton sheets and, and uh, you know, uh, what was not just uh, the rich dad, poor dad, but there was like a few of these guys who had these programs, right? But that was the only, well, the infomercials, that was the thing to do. And that was the way you were going to get wealthy. 
But the reality is, is that I wanted people to understand like, no, you don't need only one thing. You can, you can go with one thing, but you need to find a thing that kind of speaks to you or at least gives you comfort. And the first thing is then you have to understand like, what is it you're trying to achieve? And this right. is the same with business, right? Like when you get into business, people are like, well, I want to make more money. And I'm like, great. Why? Right. You know, right. like what, what's the driver? It's the same with what do, I want my money to grow. Okay. Why? What, like, what's our objective? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I understand you want your kids to have money or you want your grandchildren to have money, but like, what is the tangible goal? And do we even know where we're going? So it's, it's kind of like ways or GPS, right? Like if you don't have the destination, you're never going to get there. Mm-hmm. And so we have to like build the architecture to, to kind of understand like where you want to go. And then I want people to understand, like, it's much more of a, of an idea that if you want to go with stocks and you have a financial planner or an advisor, that's fine, but know what they're kind of telling you and, and think through like how they're getting paid, right? Like it's the same with credit cards, credit card, bad, good. Like if you don't carry a balance, there's nothing inherently wrong. It's a convenient thing, but the interest rate that they'll charge you if you don't pay it is bad, mm-hmm. but you don't have to have this negative connotation of like, Oh, no credit card. Right. And so this idea that, you know, the financial planner is bad or, or the, you know, insurance broker is bad. No, it, everyone has their That's place, cool. but understand what these roles are and understand how they're getting paid. Mm-hmm. Like you need to understand, like everyone is making a living and living and that's important, but understand how they're doing it. Right. And so when you have a planner, if, if that person is works for Edward Jones and they say these mutual funds are the best things, that may be a true sort of statement, but are there other things right. that they can't put you in and therefore they're not incentivized to tell you about, or they don't have access to that may be a better fit for you. Mm-hmm. And so that, and like, I mean, and the same with the insurance guy, like insurance solves 90% of the problems to an insurance broker, Right. But maybe it sort of kind of doesn't. And you just need to understand how they're being incentivized, how they're being paid and what, what's in your best interest. There's so much to unpack here, Aria, because you mentioned the, you know, what the interest, right? What you're interested in peace and what, you know, what your goals are. And there's also the time piece, right? And most entrepreneurs, and you work mostly with entrepreneurs and business owners, you know, the time piece is a big component, right? Like they're just full on passionate about growing their company, and, and, and I would say most of us, right? Like I, I always say to my students, like, I don't want to spend my days researching individual stocks. Like I, I have a very rich and busy and wonderful life. It's not what I want to do. If you want to do that, that's great, but it's, it's not what I'm interested in. So I'm more of like a set it and forget it kind of gal in, in that sense. Right. So there's, there's, there's so many different models and people might be wondering, okay, so how, uh, where, where, how do I decide where am I in, in, in the, in the, in the design of wealth building? Like, like, you know, there's, there's real estate, there's, you know, building your own business from scratch. And by the way, I think we alluded to this. It's not the same skill as growing a business either. Right. Um, so, so I guess, I guess what I'm going for is maybe help listeners try to see how can they even know for themselves what is one or a few of the things that they might potentially be looking at in their design in their long-term wealth design. Let's see, how do they, how do we even get there? Yeah, no, that that's a great question and, and make good points on, on the set it and forget it and all these things. Right. So I think, I think anyone who's super busy wants the set it and forget it. Right. And, and so I think the first thing that I ask people is like, what is the duration of time that we're even looking at? Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of people actually don't even know 
Um, and this is something that like, you know, my, I have kids in high school. And so this past year, I started teaching, you know, volunteering in high school to teach some of these fundamentals, because I feel like kids coming out of high school don't know this. And then we're never really taught a lot of this. Um, and so there's something like the rule of 72. And, and that just simply, right, like you take the intra, the rate of return that you're getting and you multiply it by the number of years. When it, when it equals 72, then it's going to, so for example, if someone's listening, if you have a 9% return over eight years, so it's nine times eight is 72, your money will double, therefore, at a 9% rate over eight, eight years. years, right? And so there's ways to do it for tripling and quadrupling all these things. But for perspective, people are like, well, how fast can I double my money, right? So when you frame it that way, just showing people like, okay, what timeline are we looking at? Well, this I just example I just gave is eight years, right? So we're, we're talking about eight years. Some people that'd be like, oh, oh my goodness. So if I do this for the next 30 or 40 years, it's going to double that many more times. The compound effect is going to be huge. And mm-hmm. other people will be like, well, I want to retire in five. So that's not going to work for me, right? Like, right. so understand like what kind of aggressive nature do you need for mm-hmm. your timeline? But also how does that feel to you? Meaning if something can go up 30% a year, guess what? it probably can go down 30% or more right. a year, right? right? And so how does that feel to you when you see, you know, since November, I don't know, here we are in, in late uh, April of 22. So, so from November of 21 until April of 22, if you had said, okay, I'm, I'm finally going to do it. I'm just going to put all my money in the NASDAQ. Um, and you went heavy tech, you're probably not feeling so great because you're probably down closer, you know, top to bottom, probably closer to 40, 50% or more, depending on the stocks that you're actually in, or if you just went to the broad NASDAQ, right? And so- uh, from that perspective, like, does that make you sick? And does that mm-hmm. make you feel like, oh my God, like the world is ending because I just lost half of my net worth? Or are you like, hey, I have a long-term approach here and I'm okay with this, right? So so understanding like what time horizon we're looking at, understanding your risk profile of like, you know what, I, I really don't like the volatility. I understand stocks go up and stocks go, stocks go down, but maybe it's a better set it and forget it S&P 500 type of thing. Because mm-hmm. the truth is, is like if you're going to play in single name stocks, not ETFs, but single name companies, right? You you can't really be a total set it and forget it. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are certain bellwethers that, yeah, if you're going to buy a little bit of Microsoft every year and you're going to buy a little bit of Apple every year, you're probably okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to go away. I mean, think about the people who used to buy GE or AT&T and all these stocks. The world changes. So you do have to stay on top right. of some of these things, right? Whereas like in the S&P 500, there's 500 of the biggest United States companies. Probability is if one of them doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect because the guy who went 100X, he carried the weight, right? And so- Plus these companies are changing over time, so- <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. So, and, and they rotated out to exactly to your point. Um, and so I think understanding your, your timeline, understanding your risk profile and understanding your objectives are really- Again, these are things that are like, they're not finance, they're mindset, mm-hmm. they're, they're thoughts, right. you know, like, and, and I know you know this, and I know a lot of your listeners kind of hear this type of thing, but it, it's truly real, right? And so for the entrepreneur who's like, I don't have time, okay, or I don't, I don't want to make the time. It's like, okay, so how many things can we automate, right? So how many things can we just automatically pull out ACH from my bank account, straight to Schwab, buy the S&P 500, super simple, right? Like in today's world, you can do this stuff. Click, 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 done, yes. right? Even, and I'm not necessarily like a proponent of like, you know, using the app of like Webull or Robinhood or, or public, but the thing that they did, right? So each each generation like has revolutionized something else, right? Like Schwab made, you know, trades go from $150 to $20. And mm-hmm. then 
TD Ameritrade brought the, everything online to everybody to, you know, $10. And then everybody came to $5. And then the apps came out and said, we won't charge anything. Right? Mm-hmm. So now nobody pays for commissions on the trade. There's ways they make money, obviously, but at the end of the day, you don't feel it on the front end. And <clears throat> what did they do though? What was the real, you know, kind of smart thing that they did is they fractionalized shares. So meaning like in the past, ETFs and um, you know mutual funds, that was how you got a piece of a share. Instead of owning, you know, a hundred shares of a company that you couldn't afford, you were able to buy a fraction by doing, you know, eight mutual funds. But how does it work for, for a single stock? Even if I'm on Amazon, three thousand dollars a share, like how am I gonna buy that? Right. right. So Robinhood and all these guys come out and say, okay, you can have five dollars of this. And so, you know, now Schwab and Fidelity have these things slices. But those types of things where you just want to put five dollars a week. $10 a week, or if you're at the point where you could do $1,000 a week or whatever it is, you can automate that from that perspective, right? So the person who doesn't have a lot of time, very simple, S&P 500 or an ETF of, of similar thing, VOO or any SPY, any of these things, right? Then if you're like, hey, though, I have a lot more money and I don't want to be singularly focused on stocks, right? that's fine. So number one, if you want crypto exposure, you can do the same thing. You can now auto, you know, ACH, all this stuff, $20 a week, $50 a week, $1,000, whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. Bitcoin, Ethereum, or you want to get more aggressive into the smaller names and so on and all this stuff, fine. But then if you're like, hey, but I want to do real estate. Right. Okay, so now I want to do real estate. So the first question is, it's like real estate is like this massive umbrella, right? Like it's like you live in a house, that's real estate, right? You you want to go to an Airbnb, that's real estate. You see an apartment building, that's real estate. There's a commercial store with a you know retail, that's real. So where do you kind of like what again? What speaks to you a little bit, right? So <clears throat> when I invest in real estate, when I talk to people about real estate, most of the time there is the the cash flow aspect, yeah. and so that is right. Like everything potentially has appreciation, but of in value, but the idea of a lot of the real estate assets is. It's about the, what does it throw off in terms of cash flow to, to the investor on an annual basis mm-hmm. and over the lifetime of uh, this investment. So for that, like I generally am like, okay, I like multifamily, right? So 100 unit building, 200 unit building, whatever it may be. I like self-storage and that's another cash flowing asset. So what's funny is like I grew up in, in New Jersey and I live in New Jersey and I spent some time in New York. But outside of that, like I've never lived, you know, in Florida. I've never lived in Texas. And, you know, as, as a Jewish Orthodox person, we also like, we tend to have bigger homes, right? Because mm-hmm. we're, you know, bigger families. Bigger families. So we, right. And so we, we have a lot of space in general, but we also have a lot of stuff. So we have garages. We don't, we don't have like all tools and all this stuff. Like maybe some people do, but like for the most part, like garages and storage is all for stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. But, and in the Northeast, the weather is not super conducive to like these like drive up self-storage things. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like when I when I was learning about like five or six years ago, it seemed like such a strange investment strategy to me. I was like, oh, those big cube box things that I see on the highway and they're, you know, it's like four levels. And they're like, yeah, but in the rest of the country, that's not how it works. Right. I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, well, in Texas and Florida, you don't have a basement. I'm like, huh, good point. You know? Mm-hmm. And so all these things I started like looking into and I was like, well, who keeps that stuff? They're like, well, maybe they have a boat and they have an RV or they have, you know, the, the ATV or the off-roading or the, this or the, that. And like, they have 18 acres. So they need all the equipment that they don't use in the winter. They want to store it somewhere. I'm like, Oh, how interesting. Right. So like, as I learned about the industry and, and I started investing in it, <clears throat> it was very interesting that it's a stable cash flow business, similar to housing. 
Mm-hmm. And then you have commercial that could be office. You can have, um, you can both have medical buildings or a regular office. You can have retail. Some people now are very negative on retail. Then there are things called like triple net lease, meaning like basically the tenant pays everything. You own right. the building, but there's no real maintenance cost of these things. And so there's pros and cons to each one of these. The typical gating, limiting gating factor to this is you need a bigger check to write, to get into mm-hmm. these But these are very, these could be extremely passive from the perspective of you write a 25, 50, $100,000 check, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But after that, the professional operator, right? What we call the sponsor, the person who's going to buy the asset, who's right. going to run the asset. This is what they do for a living. Their team mm-hmm. does this, right? They have people. They're going to manage all of that. And literally, you're just going to get a distribution, whether it's monthly or quarterly. Now, you can get into projects that are development, right? It's unbuilt. Hey, come and build. That, the risk reward starts to change tremendously, right? Like you may see massive potential upside, but you also could be zeroed out because, oh, we thought the project would cost us $30 million and it turns out it's $60 million and so the bank foreclosed on us. Mm-hmm. And so understanding these things. So for me, the big thing with like for my architectural idea is that I want to be able to explain people when they come to me, <clears throat> there's two things. I can bring them things to invest in or they can bring me. And then to me, it doesn't matter because mm. I'm not incentivized either way. Mm-hmm. And so some people do both. And so when they bring me things, I basically am framing what is the risks here? What is the downside? What is the upside? Understand the timeline. How liquid is this? How long could it take you to get your money back? And the other thing that I think there's that disconnect is people naturally are like, oh, when you buy a stock, you have instant you know, ability to sell. And even if you get into a fund that says, well, you can't sell it for 90 days or a year with real estate, you are no longer in these projects. You're not in control anymore. Right. right. Like you, you could be in for 10 years or, or longer. And so some people are okay with that because this is a different asset class and they have all these other things. And some people, surprise, like they didn't know that. Right. Mm. And so these are things that, you know, when they come to me and they're like, hey, I'm looking at this, the first thing that I'm thinking about is like, okay, what is what's the timeline that you're looking for? What is the rate of return you're looking for? And what is the risk you're willing to take? Right. Now I can explain this to you and kind of fit, does this fit or check these boxes for you? Because, you know, I also, one of the things I do personally is like, I invest in a lot of startups and and as an angel investor, right? And to me, that's where I'm looking for that hundred X. When I do real estate, I'm not like, I don't, I don't actually like development deals. I I tried that when I was younger and I unfortunately paid, you know, paid my dues and learned my lessons the hard way. But the reality is, is that like, you know, the angel investing sounds sexy and cool and everybody's so interested in it, but like that you have to expect a lot of strikeouts, six, mm-hmm. seven, eight out of 10 are going to go to zero. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want that on my real estate side. I want a long-term ask. So again, knowing how that person feels about these things, when, when people like I've started working with a number of people who have, have seen tremendous success online and they're like, these people want me to invest in their startup. Look at this. And I'm like, where, let's start at the beginning. Where are the rest of your assets? Right. What are you invested in? Like, that's not the first place we want to no. put your money. And they're like, huh. That's kind of a good point. I didn't even think about that, right? right? And and so that's just the framing of like, okay, I don't have a lot of time. What interests me? Oh, the startups interest me. Okay, well, we better set everything else up for you first, then, right. because if you are going to spend yes. that time, that's cool. And we're going to say that ten percent of your portfolio could be there, but let's set everything else up because this is the stuff you don't really enjoy. But that may be what is the rock bed 
of your families and your grandchildren's future, whatever it may be. Exactly. Exactly. Everything you said here is music to my ears, especially the real estate part, because I I happen to love real estate. Um, My husband is in real (laughs) estate. Um, And you said, you know, one of the gates is you usually need a bigger check, but you also need the time to really understand, like you said, real estate is a big umbrella, right? Um, Right. And it seems from everything you were saying that it makes sense for somebody who doesn't want to who is short on the time and doesn't have the know-how yet. Maybe they didn't inherit this know-how from their family. It's not their family business. It's not their thing, right? To come talk to somebody like you who can walk them through the pros and cons of different real estate projects, for example, among many other things. So, you know, short, like just shorten your time (laughs) Mm -hmm. investment so that you can get on with a financial investment that's going to make you the return. Right. Right. And, and I think I think a lot of times that that is what, what stumbles people and right. stops them from starting, right? right. They're like, ah, I'm not 100% sure. Listen, no one gets it right 100% of the time. Like I, I told you, I'm, I made these mistakes in the beginning. Like I thought I was going to do single family homes. And that was a disaster. You know, like no one ever knows everything. And so first and foremost, don't let the lack of perfection or the 100% certainty you mm-hmm. know, get you from starting. Like always start. Because you can fix it later. Yeah. Number number two is is the the comment you made about shorten that time. It, it's just like anything else, right? Like if you do you want to cut your own hair, or do you pay someone to cut your hair, right? Do you do you clean your house or do you pay someone to clean your house? Do you have a mentor in business or did you want to learn all, everything on your own and make every possible mistake on your own, right? So this is just like anything else. That if you can have someone who can explain something to you, right? So these real estate, what I typically do is. I'll go through it and I'll either leave a voice message for the person if they brought me something or I'll make a video in you know, Loom or Zoom or any of these things where I'm like, okay, here are, here are the high points. Here are the risks. Here are the, here are the benefits. Here's why I like it. Here's why I don't like it. Obviously, if you want me to give you a firm opinion, I can give you a firm, but now you are a big person and you get to make the decision. I'm not right. trying to lean you one way or another, but I'm, I'm really, in, instead of you trying to research a hundred things in a 20 minute video now, and if you 2x that on speed when you watch it back, mm-hmm. in, so in 10 minutes, you can actually have a, a decent understanding of like, okay, I am, I feel comfortable with writing this check or not. And and now the truth of the matter is, is the world with like Yield Street and Realty Mogul and all these platforms, there are negatives to it. And but there's a lot of positives in the sense that they're trying to what I would call like bring big check, you know, real mm-hmm. estate to Main Street, right? To bring to the person who can only write a thousand dollar check or whatever it is. And, and it doesn't necessarily translate exactly and it doesn't work 100%. And there's layers of fees. So everybody should be very clear, like, you know, someone's making money on this, right? But the thesis makes sense. Before we go into financial failures, because this is always <laughs> interesting to hear, and you've already mentioned it. Um, I want to ask you, because now that it's so clear how you work with individuals and how this is beneficial and also how they should be looking at their wealth creation, you know, when we're married, it, it it's, it's a partnership. Wealth creation now is, is something that we should be involved in together, right? It's a joint effort, hopefully. I'm wondering from your experience, people who come to you um, who are married or who are in a committed relationship. Um, what have you noticed are some of the pitfalls or things that are, that are going on in the relationship and how money's playing a role in the relationship that could, there's room for improvement or things that could be done better. 
Okay. So You're we don't laughing. have four. I'm laughing because we don't have a month to talk about this. But, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, no. So I think, I, I think it's first and foremost, like if you're listening and you're like, oh, that's me or that's not like it, you're normal. Okay. For understand that every human is different and every human kind of comes from their upbringing first. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of these psychological things that are deeply rooted, you may or may not remember what went on in your childhood, but it plays a role in everything. Right. And, and so <clears throat> you naturally have either a partner or a relationship or a spouse that you um, didn't grow up in the same household and yeah. you did not grow up with the same values on this topic. And just because all your other values match does not mean that your money values match. And you need to be prepared to have those conversations. And sometimes they are hard conversations. And just like anything else, right? There's going to be a give and a take. There's going to be sometimes you're going to have to compromise, sometimes not. And and it's funny, like, because I know you've talked about this in the past, like this whole like, oh, you know, like one person does everything and like whatever, la-di-da, let, let it be. And it tends to be unhealthy that way. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the, the, the partnerships and the marriages and then the things that where people at least have an understanding, they may not want to be the sole decision maker, or the primary decision maker. It, it's nice when people are like, I trust you. I trust you. Do whatever you want. But it's not healthy. Wow. Right. Because it, it translates somewhere down the road. A few things can break right? Like spending on one side, typically you typically have a saver and a spender in, in, in a relationship. It just happens to be that the, the natural attraction will kind of lead that way. Right. And so if the person who's the spender is the one who's like, I trust you to make all the decisions. Well, then that spender is just going to go on their way thinking everything is fine because I'm a spender and I'm just going to do, and I'm going to live my life and I'm going to be happy and I'm going to buy whatever it is I want. And now you, the onus is, is on this saver or right. on this you know, investor to basically counterbalance all the things that this spender is doing, right? So the first thing I would say is like, at a minimum, just kind of get up to speed and be educated enough to understand. You don't have to be the primary decision maker, but it's nice to have the involvement. I do understand the, the time issues, right? Like we live really, really busy lives, you know, much busier than our parents and grandparents did 20 years ago. And so to get two people to even to come to a meeting, right? Like if I want to meet with them, like that's going to be close to impossible from a scheduling standpoint. And I get that, but there needs to, I, you need to know in your relationship that you are downloading to each other, whether it's weekly or monthly, just like date night, just like whatever check-in night or whatever you want to call for your relationship, this is a topic that needs check-in and say, hey, hey, like this is what I'm thinking about for our future. Mm-hmm. Are is, does this make sense to you? Right. Cause like when everybody dates, they're like, you know, first and foremost, they're always showing like the, the best side of them. Right. But later on, like their views may change of like, hey, I want to live in this part of the country or in this country in particular. Right. And or no, I want to live in a different country. I want to be close to my kids. I want to be close to my grandchildren. No, let them travel. I'd much rather live somewhere else where all these things, your life experiences are going to evolve and you're going to change. And you need to be on the same page as opposed to feeling stuck that you're like, oh, goodness. I didn't know this is where we were going or I just trusted. And, and now like, I feel like I, I'm not where I want to be and I'm not happy. And it's, it's this thing you could have, you could have just fixed earlier on. Mm-hmm. So having the conversations, it's, it's very hard for some people and it's very easy for some people, but no matter what it is, 
don't think of you're not an anomaly you're, you're, and you're definitely not alone. And the reality is, is like, if you have a conversation and the person reacts poorly, then you need to find like what's triggering that reaction, right? Like it's, it's not the money. It's probably something attached to the money. Right. Right. Ari, I want to ask you, cause so far we've addressed, um, you know, the entrepreneur, the business owner, but many listening might be employees, which is also, you know, great. And, you know, they might be saying, well, you know, I just have a traditional 401k and maybe I have a brokerage account and maybe I own my own home, you know, and I thought that was the path to wealth creation. Um, is there anything that you would add um, uh, or you would encourage people, um, you know, holding by that model to think about? Yeah, sure. So I, I think, um, you know, again, to go back a little bit in history in the sense of like where the 401k came from, right? So like pre-1970, that wasn't like a thing, right? Like companies had these things called pension plans and they would pay for your retirement, kind of like social security was designed. And everyone quickly figured out like this is not going to work. Either the company is going to go out of business or they won't be able to pay all these people's retirements. So they, they put the onus then on the employee and they said, okay, we'll create this other thing called the 401k. And that really was the boom to the mutual fund industry where, okay, now you can buy fractions of all this stuff. And so a 401k in, in essence is just like any other investment account, except the company now takes your money out typically pre-tax, right? So that's a traditional 401k. Now there's something called a Roth 401k, which is, you know, you pay the tax and you don't pay any tax on the growth. But the idea is that money comes out of your salary, right? Goes right into this investment thing, we'll call it, like this vehicle. We'll talk about the vehicle in a second. But you don't pay taxes on it. You're not reporting it on your income today. And it grows tax deferred, right? So you don't touch anything and nobody pays any taxes. So if you if you buy and sell and buy and sell and it's growing, it's growing, great. Until you take it out, you're not going to pay his taxes. Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, why did the company do this, right? So they are, quote, unquote, looking out for the employee, right? They're, they're, they're planning, they're helping you plan for their future. Okay, so some companies have what we call a match or a partial match or some other kind of match or whatever it is. And what that means is like for every dollar that I put in as an employee, they may or may not give me, let's say, 50 cents to put in as well. They may put in 30 cents. They may put mm-hmm. in 20 cents, right? So you have to know your plan. Like I'd say a standard corporate structure looks what we call like um, on your first 6% that you put in, so if you make $100,000, the first $6,000 you put in, the company will put in 3%, i.e. 50 cents on the dollar. That's like what I would say, like, is that's in today's world, maybe almost like an, a, genera- you know, a generous match. Some, excuse me, some companies have bigger matches, some have no matches, right? But at the end of the day, any match is free money. Right. Okay. And so therefore, you should put the contribution as an employee to the to the best amount that's going to get you a match. So my example of a 6%, if you if you have a $100,000 salary, put in that full 6% because you're basically getting 50 cents on the dollar, meaning mm-hmm. a 50% return every year for free. Now, some of these companies have what we call vesting schedules, meaning that you don't get that money until you're one, two, three, four, five, but irrespective, take, take the match. After the match, you now have to look at your expense line and say, can, can I afford to do this, right? Can, can I afford to put this money away? Because- Here's the thing that like the, the unhidden knock on 401ks and IRAs, which mm-hmm. are just personal ones. And that is you can't take the money out until you're 59 and a half. So the United States has set up this nice idea that everybody's going to work until they're 59 and a half, and then they're going to get to enjoy life. Mm-hmm. And so some people will be like, that doesn't sound so smart, right? Like at six years old, like I was probably better health than 30 
And I probably could have enjoyed different things at 30 that I can't enjoy at 60. So if you're thinking about weddings, bar mitzvahs, college, even like trips around the world or whatever it is, this money will not kick in till you're 60 years old, right? And so a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I'm not going to retire until I'm 60. So that's no big deal. But maybe your life's going to change and you're going to want to retire. You can take it out, but there's a penalty, right? I mean, the CARES Act and and COVID, they let you pull it out anyway. But for the most part, there's typically a 10% penalty. And keep in mind, taxes, taxes, right? And so all the gains that you've put in have taxes on them as well. So I I kind of like caution people to be like, I'm not opposed to a 401k, but understand that that money is pretty tied up. Mm -hmm. And that money is not going to be used for tuition or things that may be in your day in and day out life. And I do want people to have for later, but I also want people to understand that like it creates a lot less flexible situation. You can borrow against it and do different things, but for the most part, like you need to to at least have that frame of reference because I think a lot of people like forget it in the moment. They're mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, I'm gonna my savings or my retirement. And five years into like take a 24-year-old who gets their first job, they start doing this. Five years in, they're like, you know what, I'm gonna go work for myself. Oh, you know what? I really could use that thirty thousand dollars to mm. fund my business. Yeah, you'll pay the 10% fee, you'll pay taxes, whatever, but you're 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 gonna be upset about it, right? And mm-hmm. you potentially could have avoided that if you had kind of thought about it differently. But at the same time, you didn't know better. Not I shouldn't say you didn't know better. You didn't think you were gonna do that. Right. And so therefore you were playing the long game of, hey, I'm gonna be 24, I can fund it early, it will compound. So again, not to not do it, but just have perspective of like what some of the limitations are. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting point. I guess, I guess, I guess the takeaway from that is it's going back, circling back to what you had said earlier. It's just you have to have like a holistic approach, right? Because it's not to knock down the long term, quote unquote, retirement savings. Not that we really believe in retirement, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but there's also room for having money that's growing that you can access that's more liquid than the money that's stuck in a retirement account so that you can pay for your child's wedding or for your, I don't know, your child's bar mitzvah yeah. or whatever. Correct. Right. So this is just different pieces of this architecture. <laughs> Let, let's, uh, of this design. And by the way, it's going back to the entrepreneurs. It's also not to say that if you're an entrepreneur and hopefully you're paying yourself a salary, please, right. big red flag, big neon sign. Can we just all like emphasize that? Like how many people are just running these businesses and like they're not paying themselves, but let's not go there. Let's assume you're paying yourself a salary. That's not to say that you also should not consider aside from the fact that you should have other p- parts of the puzzle here maybe you want to consider a SEP IRA or a solo 401k right as part of this big portfolio yeah no 100% especially like when you are an entrepreneur right so you mentioned the SEP IRA you mentioned the the solo 401k the solo solo 401k like that industry has also evolved where they what some people may call like self-administered some people may call check writing Mm -hmm. but those are the types of things that you can actually put in other asset classes, such as real estate, where let's say I don't have a lot of money, but I have $100,000 in this 401k thing that I used to work with, right? If I port that over, right, you can transfer because if you're no longer at that company, now I potentially can start my my wealth building in real estate that I wanted to do, but I didn't have a lot of money outside of my 401k. If I move that to a solo 401k type of thing, I can actually start to write checks to, you know, real estate deals that I wanted to be in, but I couldn't access. And so again, this is just like knowledge kind of, you know, is, has evolved. 
And, and there are ways even to like, you know, people are like always interested in like lower tax bracket, higher tax bracket, you know, so, so sheltering some of that income can have a positive impact and, and keep you into a lower bracket. But again, I'm not a tax professional, definitely talk to one. Um, and at the same time, like, does the Roth fit you better? Does, does the traditional fit you better, right? Are you going to be paying more taxes in the future versus now? Who knows? Because the tax laws can change. Um, and the Roth could even get abolished, you know, mm-hmm. like there's no way to know. And I remember there was a point I was at a, I was in a company that, um, I was at a hedge fund that they had both. You could do a, four, a Roth 401k or a, a traditional 401k. And I talked to my tax person and they're like, you know, in theory, this, in theory, that, and I'm like, give me an answer. Right? Why and, do I choose? <laughs> yeah. And they're like, you know what? The United States is so unpredictable when it comes to taxes. They said, you know what? Just go 50, 50. Mm. I was like, okay. So I split half of it went to a Roth, half of it went to a traditional. And, you know, the laws that have, upheld, have been upheld so far for Roths. And, you know, in hindsight, I probably would have put it all in the Roth at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I have to go back into the math of what was my tax bracket then? Because again, if you put it in the Roth, you're paying the taxes today. And if you were, if it happened to have been years that I was, you know, thank God doing really, really well, then Maybe I wouldn't have. So again, tax professionals have have a have a job for a reason. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ari, you mentioned that you know, even though you have all this knowledge, you've also had your own you know financial failures. Any any that you that stand out where you felt like, oh my gosh, this was a big one, and I've learned so much since. Like I could see why how I I turned this over. No. So um, yeah, so I did mention some of the real estate ones. Um, I definitely. In the beginning, I think I think when I first started, I was kind of like, um, you know what? Like anybody could like I'll 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 do this. So that sounds good. I I never really thought about. I guess in clarification, I never thought about the downside, right? Mm-hmm. Like Warren Buffett's rule is like you know um, preserve capital, and then like rule number two, see rule number one, right? Like he's always yeah. about like you know maintain the principle. And so in the beginning, I was all about the upside. And I'm like, well, that, that looks good. Oh, that's going to do so well. And like, I didn't necessarily think about like what could go wrong and all these things. So on the real estate side, like I learned that the hard way. And like, I think it was super valuable. I mean, some of it happened obviously in 08 when a lot of things happened. So it wasn't isolated, but it made me realize like, okay, what happens when a property has too much debt? If, mm-hmm. if, if cash flow cannot cover the debt, what potentially could happen? And so I learned that that hard way. When I tried to get into a single family, I learned like, I don't want to be a landlord. I don't want to fix toilets. These are not things. And so I learned that. And that wasn't such a financial cost. It, it was okay. But the, the 08 property was, was a much bigger project. And, and it was. The thing, though, that I probably learned even earlier than that was in one of, one of my early jobs, I was working at a small venture capital private equity firm. And um, they told me that they, I was, they were going to give me what was called carry in the fund. Mm-hmm. And, and so to me, that was like a piece of the upside. That was yeah. how I translated it, right? Because that's what everybody thinks of. And, you know, we were making early stage company investments, some of which would go public, some of which would get bought and some would go under. And what I didn't understand was actually the structure of this fund and the vehicle and who got what and how this quote unquote waterfall and how all these mechanisms worked. Because I was very focused on the here and now, listening hearing 10%, hearing this, hearing that, whatever it was, right? And it was an invaluable lesson to this day in the sense that we had a number of companies that did really well. 
that I was not really the beneficiary of much of that or any of that. And it was because of how everything was structured. I didn't really understand it. I understood certain things and I didn't ask the questions because I didn't even know there was a question to ask. Right. And so now like anytime, anytime I've moved jobs or anything, like I have an employment agreement somewhere, like I'll pay the money to an attorney and make sure I understand all the business terms, right? Like I think the deal looks like this. Is this how you read it legally? Oh yes. But here's something else. Does, does this matter to you? Right. Like, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but like I, now I read legal docs pretty well, but again, like I'll, I'll pay for that attorney's time because again, they're the profession, just like we talked about shortcutting. I don't need to find myself on the wrong side of something because I was trying to save 400 bucks or a thousand dollars or whatever it is. So it's all relative. Right. But that was, I thought like I was making an early equity trade in my career. I was giving up a lot of cash comp. Um, and I figured, okay, this, this should work out. And if we make bad investments, it won't work out. But in the end, even when some of the plays did work out, it didn't really work out for me. And it did on a minor scale, but a lot of people, like they go to a fund and they talk about carry and they talk about this, ask the questions, talk to HR, talk to your manager, talk to the fund person say like, listen, I know I, maybe I should know this. I'm working in a fund and think like, I know this stuff, but help me understand like, what, what does this really do for me? You know, and like I've seen it in my profession, not necessarily my mistakes, but there was also, I, w- I worked at a fund that it had vague language around a very specific um, uh, mechanism in the sense of when, when they exit a position, when mm-hmm. they sell a business, how does it work for the investor? And if something goes wrong, how does that affect the calculations for the investor and for the firm? And they were operating under a certain uh, understanding. And I joined this firm and um, they wanted to write off an investment. They're like, oh, this thing's going to, it's junk, right? And so they did that before I got there. I got there. And what happened was, is then they put more money in and they restructured the company and they turned it around and sold it. Now, in in aggregate, they sold it at a loss. Mm -hmm. But on the second piece, they sold it at a gain. But on the first piece, they had lost all that money. Well, because people really didn't pay attention to the legal wording, they actually, they thought it was one way. They told their investors, they're like, okay, fine. Investors like, okay, here's your money, blah, blah, blah. And down the road, like two years later, so I'm there now. And they're like, how would you read this clause? And I read it. And now I've done this for, you know, decades. And I'm like, I'm like, well, I don't know who wrote this, but this is actually poorly written. This is pretty vague. It, it could cut either way. And they're like, well, we've taken this approach. I'm like, okay, I, I can understand it. I'm like, is someone now telling you to take the, the right turn instead of the left turn? And they're like, yeah, um, our attorneys now are coming back to us and telling us we need to take this right turn. I'm like, I, I, I said, you can hold the line on the left turn and the attorneys wouldn't let them because now all their future docs have said something and they're not comfortable and they wouldn't sign off on something and the auditors get involved the whole big thing. And they gave millions of money to their investors to make this right turn. And like, it was again, because of vagueness, not no one asked the question at that time, like, Hey, what about this potential scenario? They didn't think about like this thing where you're going to restructure. And so again, it's like minutia at the time. But it was, I kid you not, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of a difference. Right. And so those kinds of things, like I've definitely witnessed a number of times, like, you know, I gave my personal ones, but I've also seen it professionally as well. 
Yeah, I, I think a lot of what we're saying here really revolves around one word, and that's education, right? You kept saying this, ask the questions, right? You didn't, you didn't know to ask the questions, you didn't even know what questions to ask, right? Yeah, and, and really, what we're both advocating here is ask, please just ask. And you framed it so nicely, you said, maybe I should know this. And I, I, and I really don't. Right. No. Um, and I would like your help. And more often than not, people are happy to help <laughs> get second <Right>. opinions too. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ari, I want to wrap it up and ask, there might be people in the audience who are listening to us and are saying, listen, I am an Orthodox family. The cost of living is tremendously high, you know, and, and that's okay. Right. It's, it's very valuable. No, no problem there, but I don't like my money stretched to the max. Right. And it's not mm -hmm. that we don't manage it irresponsibly. We're pretty responsible. What, and they're thinking like, how could I make things work better? Because the expenses are high. The goals are expensive. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> um, and, you know, people are always trying to grow their income. That's that's a very important piece of this conversation. A hundred percent. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and maybe maybe that is part of the answer. But what what could we say to people so that they don't feel like this is not for me? Because I think we both agree that that's not what we want people to take away from this conversation. We want them to be motivated to take right. more control, take more ownership, get more educated, make their money work for them. So how could we encourage the folks that are stretched to the brim? Yeah. So, so I think, I think you hit on one of the things and that is um, there's like generally there's two halves to the equation, right? There's the income side and there's the expense side. And in theory, we could control both. Mm -hmm. And, and so I understand that the expense side is high because our goals are high and our cost of living is high. And, and like, I'm no stranger to any of this. So I, I fully get that. And I'm also not like you, I'm not from the school thought of Dave Ramsey and, you know, cut out the latte and, you know, like live some, Popper's life, but there is, there is a balance in there mm -hmm. on the expense side of like understanding, like want and need understanding, like, Hey, you know, you know, I, because my kids are now, you know, a little bit older, right. So I have four kids and you get to a point where people are talking about, let's say this brand and, and my hand is, let's say at the, the height of my head versus this brand, which is the height of my mouth, mm -hmm. right. What is the real gap? between them from a cost and quality, right? right? And so like understanding like how much are you doing for yourself versus how much are you doing because the expectation is that, right? And that gap, while people be like, oh, you don't understand. No, I do understand. And the point is really like the gap isn't as big as you think from a quality or perspective or perception per, you know, per se. And the cost, that money could end up being the difference between, you know, going on a vacation or having a retirement or whatever it is, because it's going to have time to compound. Right. And so like, I use this, this idea of Parkinson's law. So mm -hmm. Parkinson's law is not a finance idea. The idea in, in summary is whatever, something will take up the amount of time or space that you allow it to. Right? right. And so, so, and this is how I, when I first started, like when I got married and I was working and everything, like, this is how I thought about my search. And that is like, if I don't take it out first, I will spend all of my money. All right. And if I don't take out money to invest first, I will spend all my money. Right. But if I take out my 10% and I take out my, my investment 10%, let's just use those two numbers, right? I will find a way to live happily on the yeah. 80 instead of on the 100. Right. 
And so it's the same with this, what's this gap of this coat, right? Like the Montclair or the Moustuckle or whatever versus, I don't know, pick a brand that's, you know, not that price, but it's still a nice coat. It's still a quality coat, right? So where where that, when you kind of reduce the Parkinson's and kind of get your, your you're saying, okay, I only can spend this much. Mm-hmm. Now it's not about like, oh, how do I do this with all these expenses? It's there is leftover because I did it first, right? right. It's kind of like, the, you know, Mike Wachowicz's profit yeah. first concept, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. A toothpaste analogy that Mike yeah. uses. Yeah. And so all these things, it's totally true because like, I, I truly think he, he got the idea probably from Meiser, right? And, <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm convinced of that, but, but either way, like that idea will work on the expense side because if you already have taken out the important, you know, things, I get it. On the income side, though, there's a lot of levers that that we can pull as well. And that is whether you, you know, I, I understand like there's going to be some, there's a given and taking anything, right? Mm-hmm. In the sense of like if if you want to have a second job or if you want to have, you know, a side hustle or whatever it may be, or you know, fill in the blank, it's going to come at a cost of time somewhere else. Right. So the big thing that I when I talk to people about who are starting businesses, whether you know in, in the Orthodox community or not, is understand the time leverage in, in this model you're building, right? So, so tutoring is a, is a good example where it's very nice that you can make ex, extra cash on the side, but what's that hour going to cost you from your family, from your sleep, from your relationship, whatever it may be? And if you're like, okay, I'm willing to do that. Okay, I understand that like $60 an hour may sound reasonably, you know, decent. Well, maybe $80, maybe $120, depending on where you live in the country and you're listening to this, you'd be like, no, I pay my, I pay $200 an hour for a tutor, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but understand what the market will bear so that you can say, Hey, that's my value. But maybe that, that as a business, isn't going to work long-term, right? It'll, it'll generate some cash, but it's not really a great trade. Where is something that you could do that? Maybe there's what I would call leverage in the model, meaning like I can scale it or I can use less time. Maybe I can pre-record it on Zoom and then disseminate that five times, right? Like online education, there's a reason why the business is booming because like you teach the course once and now people can listen to it on their time when it works for them and you don't have to teach it to them live every single time, right? Mm -hmm. So so generating additional income, there's something that can be done. And I, and I think that it's a lot easier today than, than ever yeah. to, you know, forget like driving for Uber or gig economy kind of stuff. Like, and I also think it's really important that, you know, in today's world, like, like the kids understand, your children understand that they can, you don't have to force them to make money, but they can do things. Like how many kids have like slime businesses or, you know, collar baking businesses or fill in the blank, whatever it is, uh, you know, flipping sneakers and, and Absolutely. all these things. And then they can feel both empowered as well as like, hey, if they want to spend some of that, the most important thing then is then actually to teach them like, okay, so some of your money should go to Microsoft, some of your money should go to savings. And some of it could be all the things you want to buy and I don't want to buy you, or mm-hmm. I tell you it's too expensive, or I tell you you don't need it, but you want it, right? And maybe we split the costs on these things, right? And, and it, it builds this lack of less entitlement and more, yeah. hey, I, I, I own this process for myself. Yeah. It also gets them to practice what real life is like, right? Because when they <laughs> grow up, that's a, those are the decisions they're going to have to be making. They're going to have to be pulling that 10% and they're going to hopefully have to invest that other 10 or whatever percent. And then they're going to make choices on how to spend the rest. Um, let's wrap it up with what I call uh, Jewish money matters fill in the blanks. I'm going to give you an open-ended sentence and you'll finish it with whatever comes to mind. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm Arya Scheinbaum. And uh, when I give Meister or Tzedakah, I'd like to give to? 
Um, I generally give to organizations that um, I'm either close to or I've had some sort of involvement with. Mm-hmm. I'd love to make more money because? Uh, I, I guess I think about my family's future all the time. Mm. Something I wish I'd learn about money growing up is? Uh, it is replenishable that you can always make more. Yeah, you can so always re- make more. Re- remove that fear. Like, yeah. you can always make more. You can't, you can't get more time, though. Correct. You can make more money, right? Correct, yes. Money, spiritual or physical? Ooh, uh, I guess it's both. It's very yeah. much both. Yeah, very much both, right? I agree. Something I explore, John, unapologetically is? We have, um, we've changed, I'd say, like a number of years ago. My wife and I have changed that. We try and go once a year away uh, together, like when the kids are in camp or whatever. It is. Mm-hmm. And that trip, you know, we did, you know, in the beginning, whatever it was, you know, fit in the budget. Now, like that trip is like, I wouldn't say extravagant, but it is definitely it's like splurge. a splurge. Yes. <laughs> And it, and it does make a tremendous difference. Yeah, good for you. So, and again, it goes back to that intentionality, right? Planning ahead and saying this is important. And at this stage in my family, if I with some intentionality, I can achieve it. So right. why not, right? Yeah. Um, Arius, spender or saver? Oh, saver. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the answer to that. Really, investor, right? Right? Like, yeah. Come on. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> right. Today, I'm most grateful for. Um, I'm most grateful for a lot of things, um, but I guess if I pick my, I'm you know I'm grateful for what I've learned, where I am, and mm. that I'm I'm healthy enough to kind of enjoy all of that. Mm, thank God. And finally, I'm Arya Scheinbaum, and I believe Jewish money matters because uh, Jewish money matters uh, because we are Jewish and money is important. You know, it's a tool. It's a, it's a very important tool um, for our lives in many different ways. And it, it allows change. So, yes, positive change. Yes, that's what we're all about. Aria, tell us where we can find you. And also, you have a podcast. We didn't even get to cover that. So there's a <laughs> podcast. Tell us all. Tell, give us the details. Sure. So the podcast is called Inside the Line Thing. Uh, a little bit of play on the name, um, mm-hmm. as well as being this you know dark unknown place. Um, it is not focused strictly on money. It is more general business. We talk to other entrepreneurs and myself, kind of. So there's some solo episodes and as well as as guests, and it's kind of learning those questions that you didn't even know that you should be asking, or hey, I, I want to find someone to ask that question, that kind of thing. So that the podcast does touch on investing, but it is much more just business and understanding business. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Arya the Businessman. That's probably where I put out the most content and futurefundme.com or solutionadvisory.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. It was so, so, so good. And I enjoyed this conversation very much. I think it's going to be very valuable for listeners. Thank you, Arya. My pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks to Arya Shambhine for stopping by. You can find him on Instagram at Arya the Businessman. You can also tune into his podcast, Inside the Lion's Den, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thanks to all of you for being here. I know you have many choices out there and I appreciate 
appreciate you coming back here week after week to learn and to grow together. Be sure to send in those questions for Friday's Ask Yael episode. You can do that via DM on Instagram at Yael Trush, WhatsApp the number 832-317-6778 or email me Yael at YaelTrush.com. On Friday, I'll be picking a reviewer of the week. So send in those reviews via your Apple podcast app. I want to hear what you're thinking about the show. By the way, I don't just pick good reviews. Thankfully, everyone has been leaving really positive reviews, but I'm open to constructive criticism, guys. In fact, I always have ideas for the show. And, uh, you know, it's always good to hear what's working for you, what isn't, and perhaps it might sway me in one direction or another. It'll, you know, get the wheels turning and uh, uh, let me know what I could change, should change. Uh, um, Maybe, maybe not. Don't be shy. That's the point. Leave an honest review and rating and you can win a 20-minute session with me. Always looking forward to those reminder that the waiting list for my signature program god wants you to be rich is open you can join that at yaeltrush.com forward slash rich i will let you know more details about what's happening with the next cohort but be sure to join the wait list that is always a good idea hope you have a great day and remember your jewish money matters (laughs) 